Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by AIA Australia, committed to working with advisors to protect the financial health and welfare of more than 3 million Australians. In 2020, AIA paid over 2.2 billion in claims. That's a little over $42 million each week and clients needed it most. AIA Australia would like to help you arm yourself for your next client appointment with this five-part series into Australia's income protection industry from the 90s to now. Strengthen your knowledge and conversations with valuable insights from a panel of speakers from various backgrounds, exploring how the new generation of IP products can help your clients. Thank you for joining us again. This is episode three in our IDII series. Uh, In this particular episode, we're really diving into the concept of mindset and the critical thinking that needs to take place within the advisor's head so that they can approach conversations with their clients uh, coming from a new or a different mindset. Obviously, there's been a lot of changes in the the products themselves. uh, And this really, this episode is focusing on the changes that need to take place within our own minds before we have conversations with clients. Thank you for joining us again, Catherine Hayes. Thank you. Now, we are talking about the mindset that advisors need to take forward into this new world. Tell us about, uh, tell us about how you have conversations and your thinking and the way that you, um, you know, come to that critical thinking conversation with your clients. Yeah, so at my stage of my practice, I probably spend more time working with brand new clients, those who've never had uh, any insurances in the past before. So as far as this post-1 October world, those conversations are a little bit easier to have because they've never had prior covers. So what's on offer is simply what's there. So I think as much as it's been feeling like a bit of doom and gloom with the the loss of all these benefits that we've become accustomed to having, I think it's important to have a mindset about your new clients, clients who don't have any cover, they don't understand that. They, they don't know that. And if it's an option that's not available to them, there's no point lamenting over the past. So we just focus on finding a really good fit for what's there. But I do think as far as mindset goes and care, we have to be more careful than ever before, even if somebody has never had income protection in the past, because there's been a significant downside shift to the negative in terms of the offsets, the exclusions and um, the adjustments that have to be made. So as long as that's happening in the background, um, I think it's kind of business as usual with a little bit of extra care. As far as existing clients, that's a different, uh, different kettle of fish, having those conversations and going, okay, it's making them aware that they have something that they will never be able to get again. So it becomes valuable. Um, as long as it remains affordable, they're happy with it. If it becomes unaffordable, then yes, that's when we've got to start having conversations around what are the options. And there are a numerous range of options to have alterations to the existing policy versus uh, switching or you know, wait, adopting a wait and see approach even potentially. Yeah. Now um, you mentioned that uh, the loss of benefits mm. or the loss of not having the old products. Uh, and mm. and I think a lot of advisors are still in the headspace of they're trying to get 
their head around the positive, being positive for a new client and saying, this is what's available and this is what you can have. Uh, when they when they know inside their own brains what was available previously, uh, which has mm. been which is a little bit difficult. So going into those premium shock has been very difficult, tricky conversations for advisors. How have you had those conversations with your clients? Uh, I've been trying to prepare my clients for the last year or two, saying that look, these policies um, were at the peak of the best definitions we're ever going to get when they end what I would expect to see premium increases. Um, and I had just said, look, insurers are losing money, but that's because they're paying claims counter to what, you know, what the media and, you know, socials tell you, insurance do pay claims. Um, so I have been preparing them and saying, yes, we probably expect some pay rises, but that's because they need to be around to pay your claim should you need to claim. Um, and if it does become a problem, let's have a conversation. So that's a conversation I've already prepared my clients for. Um, so when they're seeing it, it's, it's less of a shock. That being said, I still do get some, some nasty shocks. We've all seen some of the, the price increases that have come through, um, you know, when, when you get even something as like twenties, 30% and it's happening every year, every second year, it's pretty nasty. You know, we've all seen those 70% IP level premium shocks and hundred 130%, I think from one I even saw that is really tough to stomach. And sometimes you see people, they lose their faith in insurance. And I think that's really, um, really damaged, but it'll come down to the individual and where, where they're at. And that's where we've got to pull out all those soft skills and, um, and help the clients see that their cover remains valuable. But there may come a point where it's not. It's not worth it for them. And we also have to acknowledge that as well. Yep. Now, uh, that's those, those big increases have damaged a little bit of trust in the system, in the products, mm. in in the advice that was provided. Even you know the the, the clients are feeling a little bit, but the I think the advisors are feeling a little bit as well. Mm. A little loss of trust. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I don't. I must say, I'm probably a little bit more of critical of insurers who have had the surprise has been there rather than when there's been some expectation given there. Um, there was a couple of insurers where you could see aggressive pricing discounts and experiences taught me, I said, oh, that looks like a great deal, but I know what that's going to mean a couple of years down the track. And even though that looks like the best option right now, I was sort of avoiding any significant outlier insurer because I just thought, no, that just means a big price um, hike down the track and and I've had enough of those. Uh, so taking that approach has helped a little bit, but yeah, finding an insurer who can be a little bit better in managing the costing of their books is something that um, I've grown to value more these days. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? When you when you overlay your experience of you know claims, your experience of premium shocks, mm-hmm. your experience of you know the insurers that uh, uh, well, well, you know they all keeping promises when it comes to paying claims, but the, the insurance the the ones that communicate to you a little bit better, all that experience. Um, overlays your decision-making process when it comes to, you know, how you, how you choose a specific product. Mm, absolutely. And sometimes it can be as simple as the way the wor- a letter is worded to a client or whether the insurer communicates with you as the advisor before they tell the client. So where you get experiences where they go to the client first and you're not aware of it, that's really unpleasant and that leaves a bad taste. Yep. Talk to me about the concept of getting your head around all the new products. Uh, this has been an interesting part. Obviously, you know, know your products a pretty big part of the, the legislation, always has been. Uh, but tell us about getting your head around the the different products and then to be able to then think about them from a um, from a where do you start point of view. 
Like from where do you, yeah. you know, because because you can't just compare apples with apples anymore. Oh, absolutely. I think you really do have to go old school and do a deep dive into the PDSs. So I've been working on a spreadsheet that I've been building for myself. I've analysed all the key insurers that are predominantly using over the last couple of years and now I'm moving on to the ones I use for more outlier situations. And unfortunately, as part of that analysis, I've looked at one of the insurers I was previously using quite heavily and going, I don't think I could use you anymore. There's, I don't see how you're going to fit in with my client base. Um, which is a shame because everything else with the insurer works pretty well, but there was significant downside to the definitions put in place. Um, so I think it's really important to have a look at that in a, in a deep level. Um, as far as rating software and relying on that, from what I understand, um, one of the rating softwares, it's the way it looks at superannuation contributions as an example. Some, in, some insurers are simply saying that your, your insurable income might be your wage without super, and then you either can or cannot insure super on top of that. Others are saying it's your total remuneration package, including super contributions, and you know super may or may not form part of the insurable amount. So when you take that into account with the income replacement ratios, you've got a huge variation of what really can be insured. But on one of the uh, the insurance rating software, when it asks, can you insure superannuation, it says yes. So, but that doesn't give you any detail whether it's the SG rate, whether it's part of the overall package, is it at the income replacement ratio rate, is it 100% up to a certain level? There's really not a huge amount of detail in that side. Um, but some of the digging that I've been doing is um, I'm putting my little strategy notes on it and that's what I'm doing for each insurer. Here are the pros for it's for certain situations and here is where are certain client scenarios that we come across where we're going to have to take significant care or just completely avoid this insurer even if they are the best priced and product featured because there may be some settings which would make them a detrimental fit for the client. Yeah, and this also makes advice even more complex, doesn't it, because trying to explain these different things to a client <laughs> or allow them to understand uh, how one product is different from another and why you're choosing one over another. Yeah, oh, ab absolutely. I mean, some of the a perfect example would be um, sick leave. Some insurers are choosing to offset sick leave uh, even if you don't take it. Others will allow you to have a certain amount in store before they offset it and others will only offset it if you happen to be double dipping on the IP benefit payments. Um, if you look at some of the insurers, they will have waiting periods that will not match someone's sick leave entitlements. So um, you could have somebody who has a 90-day wait, but if they've got, you know, six months plus of leave entitlements, they're going to, um, you know, for me, I look at that going, oh, that's a complaint waiting to happen if you recommended that insurer because they're off work for six months and they get nothing. Um, so that could be a real um, issue for the advisor. So care has to be taken in those scenarios. Similar things with parental leave, there's some issues around there. Um, whether you're able to ensure ongoing business income, there's so many elements to take into account. Yeah, it's interesting that word, those words complaint waiting to happen. Uh, yeah. I guess there's two sides to this though, right? Because if you if you put a lot of detail into this at the beginning, explaining to the client, look, there are 10 different things here. Uh, these are the most important ones. These things are going to come down later. Once you've got something like that in place, it makes it very difficult for, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, the, I guess the other products would have to change for them to come back into the into the realm. That's right. And then you still have to put your overlay of, you know, who's the best underwriter for their medical history on top of that. And that's the scenario that I'm not looking forward to where someone might be clearly the best from an underwriting outcome, but there's 
an exclusion or a clause that would be a significant detriment otherwise. So laying that out will be um, add an element of trickiness to it. Not insurmountable, but certainly not more time consuming. So it sounds a bit more more like there's, there's there's more work to be done from the advisor's point of view. The, the products Correct. the products might be simpler, but it hasn't really brought the cost down because the cost to provide the advice is going to go up. Yes. <laughs> Catherine, thanks so much for being part of this particular episode. We look forward to catching you in the next one. Wonderful. Thank you. Welcome back, Jeff. Thanks, Fraser. Brilliant to have you along. Now, in this particular episode, we are talking about some of the mindset uh, changes that really advisors need to take place. And of course, as you mentioned, you've got uh, you know 24 staff and seven advisors in your practice, uh, all of which should be talking a lot about uh, the, the new approach and, and how do you approach uh, you know income protection at the moment uh, t- tell us about your critical thinking has there been any major changes within the advisor's minds I think we're starting probably from a I don't know if low base is the right word but you know when it comes to insurance it has been a challenging environment for a number of years so advisors are starting with a little bit of frustration and a little bit of um, you know some people thinking about throwing their hands in the air and I know the statistics are suggesting a lot of people are walking away from insurance which you know, from my viewpoint is is a tragedy because it's such an important part of, of what we do for our clients. Um, it's such an important part of what we do for society and it's going to lead to bigger problems down the track. So if there's less people providing advice in this space, then it is going to be, you know, it's going to cause problems. So, you know, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. So, you know, I, I don't find it too hard to kind of put a smile on my face most days. Um, but doing my best to encourage our, our team to continue to look for those opportunities to help our clients in, in any way we can and insurance being a big part of that. I think when it comes to the, the recent changes, I, I kind of separating into two camps. It's like for new clients who don't have existing cover, then the mindset is pretty straightforward. It's, you know, this is what we've got to work with. We're going to do the best we possibly can for you with, with the tools and the uh, products we've got available to us and we just get on with it. Any challenges with that are really in the advisor's head and that's where we can get caught up going, oh, but the product is is crap compared to what we used to have. And yeah, that might be true, but it's what we've got. So there's nothing we can do about that right now. So we've just got to get on with it and say, this is the best product. How can we help our client in the best way we can? For those existing clients, it is a harder one because we do know that at some point in time, we're going to have to bite the bullet and make those changes um, potentially because it's going to become unsustainable from their cash flow to keep those products. So that that's a hard one to get through and, and I think, you know, we need to, I guess, continue to work with our team on that one. But yeah. I think um, there's lots of stuff that I can think about in terms of, you know, advisors' mindset where I think we talked about in an earlier episode a little bit of that, you know, disincentive for innovation and that first mover disadvantage and that's because, you know, we have become quite set in our ways and familiar with the products that we've got and we like what we've got. And when somebody comes out with something which might be a little bit different, which might be a really great idea, but it's quite different and there's, you know, it's hard to compare and it's hard to revise our kind of um, strategy for recommending it to clients, presenting it to clients, then there's resistance. So it doesn't get the support. And then so the insurance companies go, well, what's the point in innovating anymore? Because we don't, you know, no one wants to listen. So that's a challenge and in some ways because you know APRA banging us on the head with these changes might actually be a good thing because we've got no choice we can't sit here and think about whether we should change or not we've got to change yeah exactly right I, when the, when there is a massive amount of change like that it really just has to be the mindset of we, you know we get to do something new now not we've lost something uh, that's gone uh, you you touched on the concept of 
advisors walking away, which is going to be, uh, I guess, an issue that we're kicking the can down the road a little bit. Um, you know, the, the the reward for the risk, I suppose, of of uh, of riding risk has has become um, a lot less, and sort of needs to be. Or, might have to come back to the the table as we get uh, harder. Obviously, that was driven by uh, sustainability and the concept of trying to make premiums or profits more sustainable. Talk to us about that concept of you know a lot of advisors walking away and how that supply might be a supply and demand issue in the future. Yeah, I, I can see really see both sides of this sort of conversation. I can really understand why advisors who've got a good business and they're providing, you know, strategic advice and investment advice and retirement advice and cash flow and helping their clients in so many ways, why they do sort of screw their nose up or, or get a bit um, put off by the insurance conversation because it, it can go wrong in so many ways or it can become challenging in so many ways because you've got the underwriting process which drags out. You've got, you know, people being asked these invasive questions and, you know, uncovering things that they don't really want to talk about and then you've got delays and then you've got the premium increases you've got to handle off the back of that when you've got it in, got it through. So, you know, it's a, it's a hard area and then it's becoming more complicated as well. So when you've got so much you've already got to know and understand and cover from a compliance viewpoint. It's totally understandable, and maybe, maybe the specialist model is is the right way to go, but we've got to make sure we've got enough specialists to to sort of cover that off. And um, I heard recently, and, and you know, I don't have a source for this. I can't remember where I heard it, so you know, don't don't quote this. Um, that there's somewhere between 400 and 600 specialist insurance advisors in the market now, when there used to be somewhere between four and five thousand. So, you know, and and when you top when you put on top of that that many generalists aren't, are choosing not to do insurance advice or, or doing very little of it anymore, then that's a massive drop in, in the available market to service clients. And the need for this advice is as much, if not more than ever before. So there's definitely a supply, you know, I think the supply will come back on on stream. I think there's there's the need for the advice. So I don't think that's necessarily diminished, but the, the, um, Sorry, that's that's more the demand side. Now the demand's there, but the supply is, you know, there's so few advisors who are really focusing on this space. And I know I've I've seen a few people who have, you know, chosen to pivot their businesses in recent times and focus more on insurance, which I think is fantastic. So yeah. Yeah, I I I, I tend to see the same thing. I've seen the the, the risk specialist really uh, innovate and try and work out ways of efficiencies and doing those sorts of things. And I've also spoken to a lot of advisors that are now just referring that that out. Um, it is, though, you know, as you said, a, a huge drop in numbers. Uh, quoting the uh, the the stat that you heard somewhere, uh, but that's ninety percent <laughs> reduction, right? And in, in yeah. the amount of advisors providing advice in that space, and if, if anything, the demand is going up. So uh, that that I guess why I think that's a that's something that we're kicking down kicking the can down the road. Um, you mentioned earlier the the old versus new uh, conversation. Um, if we, you know, the the, the new client, only, yeah, there's no choice. We, it's the new product, uh, and you know, as you mentioned, you can control what you can control, and not, you can't worry about what you can't. But with the old client, um, uh, that or the existing client, we should say, not old, uh, <laughs> that has a product in place and and uh, isn't a product that we feel or fear, and we don't know for sure is unsustainable, but we feel it's unsustainable um, based on you know some some economics where we're projecting forward. Uh, as people leave those books, we know that um, books tend to get more expensive as, yep. as people opt out of them and there's no new people coming in. Um, tell, tell us about your experience that you might have had in the past around that seeing that in, in action. 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, as I said, our philosophy is that we want to help clients stick with the existing policies as long as they can. But knowing, yeah, you know, we do know when we're we're telling them each year this this increase is large, but it's going to be large again, and it's going to keep going up. But this is why we think you need to keep it. You still need the level of cover. Um, it's still important to you and your overall plan. But also talking to them about when it might not be so important anymore. So let's look at your overall financial position, and is that changing? And can we kind of tweak the sums in short or have a plan to when we don't need the cover anymore? Um, so that's one part of it. But interestingly, I, I'm having a chat with a, a friend the other day talking about. Yeah, other experiences with this type of thing. One of uh, our old, um, he's, he's old and wouldn't mind me calling him old, but I won't mention his name. Old uh, mentors who, who in when we first started in the business was sort of head of one of the licensee that we were with, um, talked about his experience with when endowment policies started becoming out of favour. And yeah, like you were saying, he was very much of the view that more people would drop out the bigger the pool available for those who stay in. So he was he was determined to, to live to 100 and keep his policy going because he, he thought he was going to be the only one left in the pool. So, you know, there is, there is I guess, a little bit of experience with, with that sort of change. And um, I don't think there's any real opportunity in this because there, there isn't a pool. But um, in terms of the opportunity is really the quality of the product and, and the likelihood of, of getting a good claims outcome, um, which is what they went into it for in the first place. Yeah, now you mentioned the pool concept. I love this concept because obviously with uh, the newer style of products after the endowment policies uh, no longer became um, part of our vocabulary, um, is that the premium is the only real uh, input into the pool and the the pool gets used up every year based on the amount of premium coming in. This is an interesting, this this draws an interesting um, topic then, isn't it? Because if we're all in this together, the whole idea of uh, insurance is to have a pool of people that all pitch in a bit of money uh, and it goes to those who need it most that year. Um, then, uh, you know, if we overlay a best interest duty, uh, you know, you're there to provide the best, in, you know, the, the what's in the best interest of that individual single client, does that then pull yeah. against the concept of having a pool of people and we're working together as a team in the pool and then an individual client then getting financial advice uh, tries to win, I guess, against their own pool? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting Interesting question and concept, but yeah, I mean, I guess it does to a degree. Um, it's where you know, if we can hang in in these these quality products, knowing that the pool is decreasing and there's no new business going in, so we know that's going to mean the premium the premiums go up even more because you're not getting any new entrance to it. But it's in the best interest of that client to, and, we, and I guess to a degree, we know that it's potentially impacting on the the profitability of of the comp- insurance companies, which is a, yeah a lesser concern, but it does impact sustainability long term. But yeah, you're right. Our first duty is to the best interest of our client, and if that's the best product for them, then that's what we've got to recommend. And I guess we, there's a degree of we don't have a great deal of confidence in the insurance companies to to have gotten it right. So much so that we think it's going to be, you know, get definitely going to be a new sustainable product, and we want to kind of support that. If you know what I mean, it's kind of you know, if we if we knew that they'd got it right and that it was going to be sustainable and this is the product of the future, then it'd be easier to jump. But yeah, the, the jury's out on that one. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it's one of those wait and see. You mentioned you mentioned best product, which which I think is a really important part of this with best interest, best product, um, best product for uh, for you to claim on should you claim. That's the I think that's the key, but also the best product for all of the other people in the pool to, to, to claim. So the better the product is for the individual the actual worse the product is for the individual because the better the product is for the pool to claim on it. And so there, there could be a, you know, a critical thinking mindset shift concept here that says <laughs> actually the easier it is to claim 
the worse it is for you should you not be claiming. Yeah, that's right. That's that's true. And the, But the idea is that you have the policy in case you claim, and if you do need to claim, then you want to maximise the probability you're going to get the benefits that you need based on your strategy and, and what was put in place. And that's I guess that's that's the big difference, isn't it, with you know the current insurance model versus the endowment style and uh, you know that type of thing. <laughs> Not for us to solve in this particular podcast. <laughs> but there you go, uh, Jeff. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, and challenging a bit of the uh, the thinking that goes around this. Uh, we look forward to I look forward to chatting you when we catch up again in the in the episode we'll be covering uh, some of the insurance philosophy. Fantastic. Thanks, Fraser. Welcome back, Natalie. Oh, hi, Fraser. It's great to be back. Thank you for joining us. Now, we are diving into some uh, some pretty heavy, uh, heavy critical thinking in this particular episode, uh, talking about some of the different mindsets and shifts that uh, mindset shifts that advisors have to sort of make or, or go through at this process. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the was the concept around a reasonable basis, I guess, of being able to talk about um, the replacement of, say, an existing product with a, a new style product? Because I think that's one of the things advisors are really struggling with at the moment. Oh, I have a, you know, a, a lot of sympathy for advisors, uh, you know, who are sort of facing into this, uh, this, this new um, question with these new products. I, I mean, one of the one of the first things I would say is that nobody expects an advisor's advice to be perfect. Um, not even ASIC, uh, not even AFCA. Um, maybe maybe your clients do, uh, but you know, from a regulatory perspective, um, you know, it it has to be advice that puts the client, you know, in a better position than um, than you know before the advice than when they started. Um, so. What the advisor really needs to do, and you know, I, I know it's it's kind of obvious, and I, I know you know all good advisors know this, but you know they they must uh, find out what is in the best interests of the um, of the client, and that that means uh, working out uh, what is their objectives, financial situation, and needs, um, making reasonable inquiries um, about their circumstances, and um, uh, reasonable investigation of the old and the new products. So it's going to be really important to really understand these new products. Uh, and then making a recommendation uh, that the advisor believes is reasonable based on those relevant circumstances. Um, it, you know, th- there are going to be compromises um, in advice, you know, and, and in life, there are always compromises. There are, there are things to give up and things to gain. Um, and really the advisor is aiming at presenting the best possible option and being really clear about what those compromises are. So really going through with the client and again, that communication piece comes in the risks and trade-offs and the understanding and capturing the client's understanding and the, and the decision-making process. That's right. Now, best interest duty has always uh, been an intriguing part of the conversation because when I, when I see best interest duty, obviously, I think about the best interest of the individual client. Uh, but of course, when we're talking about risk or insurance, we're talking about a pool of clients, uh, which is all of, you know, every single, everyone else's advisors, clients or advised clients in the same pool. And then the concept for me of um, if one of those clients has a win because they've been given a recommendation to do something that's sort of better or, or, for, or how, whatever it might be for that individual client, it could be moving against the pool of the other clients or ever, everyone else's advised clients. And, and the, the concept of best interest duty for an individual might actually move against the concept of the pool. 
it, that, that is a, it's a really fascinating perspective. And I think in a global sense, um, you know, insurance and the, you know, the, the very nature of it, the, you know, the idea of pulling risk um, and benefiting everyone, um, you know, benefiting those who both need it, but also benefiting everyone with the peace of mind that, you know, if they do need it, they'll be able to access the support. Um, I mean, that's the very sort of fundamental crux of, of life insurance, really, and all insurance. I mean, I, I would say, uh, you know, it's certainly an interesting perspective. I mean, I would be really clear, though, uh, as an advisor, what the requirements are, you know, in advising uh, a client and, um, and, and what what those requirements say, um, you know, really personal to the uh, to the client. You know, what what is that person's um, uh, financial situation, um, circumstances, needs? You know, what's most important to them? Um, you know, both in the short term and the long term. Um, you know, these are a really long term products still, and that might include, for example, um, you know, special benefits or, or things that they particularly request, but it's also got to, uh, I guess, harking back to, you know, our earlier conversation, it's really got to also include what they can afford um, and any any consequences of the advice. So, you know, any any tax or, um, you know, other consequences of, of that advice. So, I would say, um, you know, interesting concept overall, um, you know, and, and, and something to keep in mind, but really um, what the... Um, what the requirements are saying is um, know your client, um, understand what they want, communicate really well with them about what you're recommending um, and the the positives and the the negatives of that recommendation. Yep, yep. Now the um, and this comes back down to some of the mindset thinking that I I think I that I, I hear this a lot that people think of this as the 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 client versus the insurance company in that respect. And and then I also, uh, I like to try and think of it on the concept that it's actually the clients in the pool of all the other clients. And the, the insurance company is just the, the administrator of that, that pool, or the trustee of that pool, if you like. Mm. Um, and that, uh, and that, you know, you know, our products have been so good uh, compared to the rest of the world. You know, they've been this, this amazing, uh, this amazing product that has been far out, out, you know, far better than any other country in the world had. Uh, and we had this, this, this incredible policy. Um, you know, it's expensive to run that because it's easier to claim. It's not necessarily it's it's easier for the one client to claim, but it's also easier for all the other clients in the pool to claim as well, which makes it uh, you know I guess a, a leaky sieve rather than a bucket. <laughs> um, you know, a, a leaky sieve. I've actually I've actually heard heard that used before in this context, and but but like you, and I can hear it when you talk about it. I'm very proud of our um, you know our our superannuation system, including the, the group insurance that um, comes along with it, um, you know, and our um, our financial services industry, including uh, insurance and life insurance generally, uh, you know, th- these have been products that really um, stepped up to meet uh, particularly growing mental illness um, diagnoses and uh, and lots of other things. So, um, so I, I agree with you. Um, uh, you know, it's it, we wouldn't like to to lose the the positive um, in all of that. Um, I mean, I certainly having having been at insurers at a couple of different insurers uh, in my career, uh, I, quite genuinely, it never felt like it never felt like it was us against the um, the claimants. Um, and you know, I've I've run uh, claims teams of you know three or four hundred uh, claim staff, um, really. Um, genuinely trying to 
uh, to process and um, and pay claims where they were um, were due. In my experience, anyway. Um, so I agree with you. I think I think it was just a very difficult situation, uh, you know, more broadly, uh, which is which is that those products uh, simply, you know were um, more generous than um, than the the premiums that were originally set uh, could afford uh, and there was a, a you know a correction that would have to come from that uh, and that that was uh, skyrocketing uh, insurance premiums and uh, and now and I think you know you know to, to be fair to APRA you know really um, you know for, for many years you know making comment um, around this and trying to seek um, you know change and um, an intervention and and now coming out with something that um, you know is is designed to sort of uh, uh, really um, put a put a stop on that um, that cycle and um, and make things more sustainable. Um, I hope that answers your question. In a very <laughs> yeah, way, yeah it, does, it does. I'm, I'm, I want to ask you also about uh, research software because I think uh, the, the the concept of you know rating um, premium versus price, you know more, you know. Lower price, more more um, more benefits. Lower price, more benefits uh, has been a bit of a crutch that I think uh, advisors have lent on for for some time. Um, how do you see that changing, or how, like how do you see that crutch when it comes to you know we mentioned you mentioned other things like affordability and 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 you know really making sure that's in the best interest. Do you see advisors now moving not just for for you know that crutch of premium versus um, benefits, but also taking into a lot of other things into account when it comes to you know um, understanding or knowing the client or understanding how uh, different products might work or, or how do you see this working? Oh, uh, you know, I I actually have a, a lot of faith in the advice community um, that they are going to uh, just rise to this new challenge and um, and. You know, and I, you know, really not just uh, look at, and hopefully they, you know, they weren't already, but not just look at um, uh, the product features and the extent of coverage, but also look at all of the other um, circumstances, uh, you know, including affordability, and and make sure, you know, they're uh, they're tailoring the suit to the client rather than you know throwing a blanket over them, uh, and. Um, and in the end, uh, I think the outcome will be a good one uh, for 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 clients and for advisors um, and for insurers and, and the general ecosystem of insurance, provided uh, it is really um, well communicated uh, what these changes uh, are, are doing, both positive and negative, for that customer. What 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 I hope doesn't happen um, is is that there is a kind of a uh, a miss in expectations and reality uh, between what's covered and not. But I, I feel like uh, from the questions I've sort of been getting and the you know the various um, presentations I've been asked to, I feel like that's very forefront in advisors' minds. Um, and this um, you know this new challenge is just something that's going to you know cause probably a step up uh, even further in the quality of advice. Yep. Um, I just want to go back a little bit, a step, and 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 just uh, try and get my head around this as well. The 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 contemplatum of the, the, you know the, for advisors to contemplate replacing a an existing product, uh, an older style product, with a new product. At the moment, I think a lot of advisors just still struggling to get their head around that. Is that I think because because to be fair, I think some of the fear around that is around the complaint, around the fact that it could have paid on the old one when it didn't pay on the new one. 
you know, I think I think advisors are still struggling with that a little bit. Any thoughts or ideas on? <laughs> well, I think it's it. I, I genuinely um, can understand, uh, y- you know, the the concern around that because there is a feeling that you want to give your client the very best uh, cover that's available. Um, but I've seen. I've seen this phrase previously and I apologise to whoever I'm ripping it off from, but I, I do think it was a good one. I, I Best product does not equal best interest. Um, and and that is because what the, what the regulations are saying is not find the most extensive product, but find um, out about your client first. Um, you know, first off, uh, you know, who is this person? What are their hopes, dreams, financial situation, needs? Um, and uh, and then uh, tailor a recommendation to them that takes into account those things uh, and very, very importantly, um, uh, explains to them the options and, you know, you know if there is uh, an option for a product that doesn't cover as much but, uh, you know, but it, it, it's really much more affordable um, into the future especially, then um, that might well be the right thing to recommend. Uh, and I think um, that is actually what the requirements said anyway. I mean, that's, that's what ASIC um, asks advisors to do. I love that saying best interest is not equal. Sorry, best product is not equal to best interest. Fantastic saying. Um, so does this does this mean that uh, for an advisor who, um, you know, talks to their client who's got uh, um, preferences around, say, sustainability or, or not getting bill shock uh, and they become sort of a, a lead preference for a client, then you can certainly look at replacing uh, new with, uh, sorry, replacing the old ones with new. Oh, a hundred percent. I think I think it's a really viable option. Uh, we've had a lot of complaints from people who they might have had the best product, but if they're not going to be able to afford it before a claim event happens, and they're going to need to let that lapse, then that certainly wasn't a good recommendation. Um, yep. So, uh, so absolutely, affordability is um, is one of the things. It's not the only thing, but it's certainly one of the things that an advisor needs to take into account. You know, the, you know, the Corps Act talks about advisors' obligations in terms of switching advice, and that absolutely needs to include uh, a lot of detail about the cost to the client and as well as the benefits um, that the client may lose as a result of the switching. You know, there's also the, you know, the FASEA Code of Ethics uh, that also talks about uh, best interests and making sure your client understands the benefits, costs and risks of the financial product that is being recommended, um, and um, and certainly AFCA in handling complaints, you know, will overlay that entire situation um, with you know a, a fairness lens to see whether um, the advisor, you know, took into account uh, the things that they they could they could discover about the client at that time, and you know, and base their um, their advice in good faith, you know, on what they were finding out. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that fairness lens. How does it work practically? I know you've sort of got committees and groups and different people you, you go to. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, we, we don't just uh, apply the law when we consider complaints. Um, and this sometimes makes people nervous, but actually I think, you know, you, you know, if you, if you sort of get into the detail, it's actually, uh, you know, a really good thing. Um, so we apply legal principles, absolutely. Also um, industry codes and guidance, including the Code of Ethics. Uh, then we look at also good industry practice and uh, and previous determinations 
that AFCA's made. So we try to be consistent. Uh, but we also have this what is fair in all the circumstances. So um, an advisor um, who is genuinely trying to understand what their client needs and wants and uh, and has tried to meet that in a, um, in a recommendation, uh, you know, should, shouldn't be responsible for things that happened that couldn't they couldn't have foreseen, um, you know, uh, for example, or, or if the wrong information was provided to them. But what I what I would say is that we we would expect you know a good effort at communicating um, uh, what the client w- was getting um, that you know the benefits and risks, and also I would strongly recommend good documentation so that we can um, we can look back sometimes several years prior and you know and have a clear picture of of what happened at the time yeah natalie thanks so much for coming on this particular episode we look forward to catching you in the next one it was it was a pleasure to be here thanks fraser thank you for joining us again ben martin thank you fraser now in this particular episode we are challenging some of the thinking that goes on uh for advisors inside their heads around what it is and their, their mind shift uh their mind set for turning up each day and understanding what the new products are going to do and uh, and how to talk to their clients about it. Tell us a little bit about the the mindset shift. Obviously, you speak to advisors every day. Um, you know what are they struggling with, and, and 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 what are the things you sort of say to them about the, the new world versus the old world? Yeah, look, it's 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 look, the reality is it's unsettled. A lot of our advisors across the country, it's just another round of regulatory change that we need to digest and navigate. The advisors that we've been working with that seem to be making inroads in this space um, are somewhat buoyed, if I could be honest, Fraser, because fundamentally what they keep coming back to is, yes, we've got significant change on the horizon that we need to perhaps refine and finesse our advice process, uh, particularly when it comes to income protection, retail advice, but they're somewhat buoyed because they know that whilst APRA had stepped in and imposed a whole bunch of measures it's in the long-term interests of the industry, their practice, and ultimately their clients. And that's because if we get this right, we're going to end up with a with a range of IP products that are, and I hate to use the word fit for purpose, but that is code for IP contracts that are there to replace a portion of the client's income in a fair and meaningful way by reference to what they were deriving, by reference to the income that they were earning prior to the disablement. And then there are mechanisms built into this contract that ultimately encourage and help the client return to wellness and return to work where we know and advisors understand that is in their best interests long term. Okay, so in, a, in, in some respects, yes, we've got lots of change on the horizons. It's overcomplicated advice and practice in the real world. But if we can get it right, there's an opportunity here for us to build products that are fit for purpose, that are cost effective, that are affordable, that are liberated, that are liberated from those, from those traditional ad hoc rate rises. And that can be only a good thing because we remove that element of surprise for clients. We're able to set the right expectations from the outset, and ultimately, hopefully that's going to re- re- um, result in a reduction in lapses for our clients and ensure clients have cover and the contracts that they can lean on in times when they need it most. Yeah. You mentioned fit for purpose and whilst we like neither of us like using that term, it's 
it reminds me of that, you know, the rest of the world has contracts that are a, a certain, you know, a way more like our new contracts. And we just happen to have really, really good contracts here. Uh, so it feels like we're having something taken away, but essentially we're sort of just coming back into line with the rest of the world. Yeah. And look, APRA, APRA, APRA pulled that out and, and alerted to the fact that we are a bit of an outlier when you compare our traditional IP product settings with comparable jurisdictions around the OECD. Um, so I get that. And I think a lot of advisors understand that. And look, that's that's been that was the primary reason why they put a line through agreed value income protection policies, as well as those overly those bells and whistles that created those overly excessive income replacement ratios, because there was that, that fundamental disconnect between the insured benefit that's being paid out at claim time and the income that was being received in the lead up to the injury or illness that that, that occurred. Yeah. Now, earlier on, you mentioned step changes. Obviously, we, we've seen some steps previously, but we've still got some steps to go uh, when it comes. Um, does that mean we've got more instability or does that just mean we sort of, we, we know what's coming, we just need to work out how to get our heads around it? Yeah. Look, I mean, step change in the sense, so my reference earlier to step change was the fact that APRA needed to step in and impose changes on the industry because Unfortunately, when left to our own devices, we just weren't going to change on our own accord. Uh, and unfortunately, we got to a position where the where the regulator had to step in and impose um, these measures on insurers. Look, there's a couple of things also. Look, they didn't get it all right from the very beginning. I think it's worth calling out Fraser, although there was one particular measure there around the five-year initial contract term for these next-generation IP policies. That particular measure was meant to kick off from October this year, but due to a whole bunch of implementation issues that emerged during the consultation process, it was decided um, and settled that that particular measure would be deferred. The kickoff date for that would be deferred until uh, this time next year to allow the industry a little bit more breathing space and scope to work out how it would be implemented in practice. Yeah. Now, in the in the minds of many advisors, there's been a little bit of. I, I've spoken to some advisors that have said that they just you know outsource or refer risk off now. Um, is this the 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 birthplace of the new risk specialist? Look, I my, my my okay. So I hadn't actually ever thought about that. I have seen commentary on the topic. My my starting point there, Fraser, is that if well, if you look at the current settings, there's lots of variation. There's lots of variation in terms of the underlying terms and conditions and features of these new constructs. Now, um, if I'm an advisor and I'm providing a recommendation to a client to acquire a particular income protection contract, I, in this new world of variation, I need to be across what those different features are and how that fits in with my client's underlying needs, goals, and objectives. If I don't, then arguably I'm not meeting best interest duty. So in that regard, I, I, in, in my humble opinion, I think the role of the specialist risk advisor is, is, is much more important in this new world in comparison uh, to our old settings where there was a lot of consistency uh, and we didn't have as much variation within the traditional IP contracts. So in, in the past, it was just very easy to jump on a software rating and, and work out what was going to be the best, you know, short, again, best interest based on product and pricing. But uh, now it's much more important to have a human go through that. Oh, most certainly. And I can give you an example. If we look at, if, if you look at the requirements that must be met in the waiting period 
for example, and you analyze the differences across the market, there's lots of variation. So for example, some some insurers require the claimant to be di- totally disabled for the entire waiting period. Others require the claimant to be totally disabled for only one day. Now, depending on the client's occupation and nature of gainful employment, aligning a particular contract with certain requirements within the waiting period is a key and important consideration. Um, going into that blindly without knowing that level of detail, which perhaps your, which your, which perhaps your non-risk advisor may not be across, is something that is fraught with danger, particularly from a best interest duty perspective. Yep. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for coming on this particular episode. We, we really leant in towards the critical thinking uh, and mind shift. We look forward to catching you in the next episode when we get stuck into an advisor's insurance philosophy. Mm-hmm.